Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. That's how innovation happens. It's not mysterious and magical. It's committing to identifying a problem, asking the right questions, collecting the right data, coming up with ideas, trying them out, collecting that information. That's when the innovation happens. Tech is its not about just a job. It's about a career path and it's about high paying jobs. And so that's what tech affords you. Things are never going to be perfect. You know, there's always got to be some upset, some failure, some loss, but you don't lie there, you don't lay there, you keep getting up. In November 2019, Kendra Parlock was appointed the Executive Director of NPower Maryland, continuing her commitment to a career in public service after a corporate career helping businesses rebuild and expand. Prior to NPower, Kendra served as the director of the Mayor's Office of Sustainable Solutions for the City of Baltimore, where she was charged with rebuilding and expanding Baltimore's CityStat program for issue-driven performance management, data analysis, and cross-agency collaboration for public safety and neighborhood revitalization. Prior to this role, for over a span of two decades, Kendra worked as a global segment manager at Cabot Corporation led innovation projects at W.R. Grace's new business development incubator and held various technical sales and marketing roles at DuPont. Kendra studied biology and chemistry at the University of Florida and Wright State University. She received her MBA in integrative management from Michigan State University. Kendra is highly engaged with several community organizations, She is a member of the inaugural United Way of Central Maryland Philanthropic Women's Leadership Development Program, a longtime executive board member of the Bolton Hill Community Association, and a business mentor with Innovation Works, an organization working to improve Baltimore's neighborhood economies. In 2021, Kendra was named one of the top 100 women in Maryland by the Daily Record, recognizing outstanding achievements by women in business and mentoring. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Good morning. I am talking this morning with the fabulous Kendra Parlock, Executive Director of NPower. Good morning, Kendra. Good morning, Shana. Now, where are you today? Well, I'm actually physically in the NPower office. West Pratt. So we're in two locations in Baltimore, on the east side on North Milton, and then West Pratt in the University of Maryland Bioparks. I came into my office space or the best internet connection, and (laughs) there's no uh, rescue dog here barking (laughs) in the background. I should tell everybody that Kendra and I are actually neighbors. 
we live on the same street, two blocks yes. away from each other in the Bolton Hill neighborhood. Now, Kendra, you seem like you're a native of Baltimore, but you actually aren't. Is that correct? I have dual citizenship. So I was born <laughs> in Baltimore and I was raised in Detroit. My mom and dad were in the Marines. They met, they married. And when she was ready to give birth, she wanted to be close to her mom in Baltimore. So that's how I got to be born in Baltimore. But then soon after she went back to Detroit and I spent summers here with my grandmother and grandfather, cousins, the 2500 block of West Baltimore Street. And then when I went to work for um, WR Grace later in my career, I moved back to Baltimore. So does this feel like home to you or Detroit feel like home to you? They both do. I still, my dad and sister and brother and my nieces and nephews are still in Detroit, but all my mother's side of the family is here in Baltimore. So I really, I really do have two homes, but my house here in Bolton Hill is the place I've lived the longest. How long have you been in that house in Bolton Hill? We are coming up on 12 years. Do you know what year your house was built? 1874. When we went to remove the wallpaper, one of the original wallpaper hangers signed the wall before he hung the last piece, which is a really common thing for wallpaper hangers to do. You come in our house and you see it's Lawrence Fails and it's January 1874. You ended up going to school in Detroit? That's right. Kindergarten through high school was in Detroit. And you decide to study chemistry in college. Yes, science has always been a love of mine. As a kindergartner, I was entering science fairs. and Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. Like, what was your focus? Oh, I loved biology. I remember I made a crystal garden, a anthropomorphic study of fish, <laughs> beta <laughs> fish, Oh, I studied the effects of antibiotics and skin um, on apple skins. <laughs> ants, I studied ants. I remember trying to build my own ant farm when I was a kid. So, yeah, so it was actually biology and microbiology that were my first interests. And that's uh, what I studied initially. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? A research scientist. Yeah. I was very much into the uh, scientific method and had already, like I said, done uh, science fair projects, had won some. And so I very much thought that I would go into research, which I did initially at DuPont. Back to your parents, they were both Marines? That's right. It was a big deal right in the 60s for a woman, a Black woman, to be a Marine. What made her decide to go be a Marine? She grew up in Baltimore and she wanted to get away. She wanted to do something different, see something different. And she told me, yeah, that she was you know, at home in high school and a flyer came to the door, you know, through the mail. And she looked at it and was like, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. Now, what kind of work did they do in the Marines? So they were both only enlisted four years, but my mom worked in records in D.C., so you go off to college and you're studying biology and microbiology. How do you decide between getting your master's degree or going off and being a researcher? So I studied biology, microbiology, and also chemistry. 
went to work for DuPont and loved what I was doing, but realized that what I really liked was being out in the field, meeting people, doing different things. And and that's where I made the decision to, to get a master's and to get an MBA. And so I made the switch from technical to more of a business role. Specifically, at that time, it was um, Six Sigma projects. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. What does it mean to be a Six Sigma black belt? By the way, I think that means you're a process nerd. Can you describe (laughs) what it means to get your Six Sigma black belt? Six Sigma, you know, yeah, measurements uh, in terms of process defects. And it actually means 3.4 defects per million opportunities. So any process that is Six Sigma, that's what it means. At the time I was at DuPont, lots of the big manufacturing companies, companies were following following GE really and recognizing that, you know, to improve their performance, not just in manufacturing and process, but also business development and other transactional processes, that they needed to train their up-and-coming leaders in Six Sigma. And so I was afforded the opportunity to uh, go through Six Sigma training at DuPont, starting with Greenbelt, then moving on to the Black Belt training, which was a several-month training, but then uh, to become a certified black belt, you had to complete a project that generated over $350,000 in savings or revenue. How many levels are there? Oh, wow. So there was green belt, there was black belt, and then there was master black belt. And so the master black belts were the people who, as a full-time role, their job was to basically be consultants to the other black belts. And how many months is each level of training? So the green belt was just a couple of weeks, and that's the entry-level training and certification. And then the black belt training, again, it was several months. But then beyond the training, you had to initiate a launch and complete a project that delivered you know, those savings or revenue dollars I talked about. And then that had to be vetted by the finance team. So that took at least a year. What were you working on at DuPont at the time? I started at DuPont in their coatings business. So I started in in paint research and that was DuPont in Troy, Michigan, where their automotive business was headquartered. So at the time, DuPont was the leading supplier of coatings to the automotive industry, GM, Chrysler, Ford. And that's where I got my green belt. But then I moved on to titanium dioxide business in Wilmington, Delaware. So my black belt project was related to uh, launching a new TIO2 brand. And it was specifically on identifying a, a new market segment and developing processes for that business development. What was the market segment? Do you remember? At the time, we were focused on how do we grow with smaller customers. And it was really about bringing our sales team together to better understand you know, what their businesses were about developing processes for for business development, identifying roles and responsibility, 
tools for uh, more marketing communication. So it was really, you know, developing that whole business development process that would enable the salespeople to better serve, you know, this smaller customer segment. Where is titanium oxide used? What did you call it? TO2? TiO2, titanium dioxide. And it's what makes white paint white. So when you're going to buy a paint, check the TiO2 levels because you'll get better hiding with more TiO2. You're a young woman. So here you are, 23, 24 years old, and you're working in paint research. <laughs> so you're literally watching, right? Paint drive. Paint <laughs> I was. Did they have like a really cool test environment with like heavy winds and rain scenario? I bet that machine factory of testing it was super cool, wasn't it? Paint quality, especially automotive paint quality, adhesion, you know, the big factor. And so one of the tests was to paint a panel, duplicating the same process that would be used in automotive paint plant. And we had labs and paint rooms to do that. I learned to spray and all those good things. And then taking those panels and putting them into, I think we called it the gravelometer. <laughs> and so you slide the panel in and then you load cups of gravel, rocks, just you know, the same ones you would encounter on the street. And you turn it on and it throws rocks at the panel. And then you literally count the number of chips on the panel. You're like, got your finger up against the panel. Yes. My God, if you didn't get it right, like, you know, missing three could make a pretty big difference, especially if you talk about Six Sigma is three defects per million. <laughs> per million, yeah. <laughs> Did you like that better than putting the management and sales team together? Those are such different jobs, right? I definitely was more intrigued about interacting with the customers and our product in action at the automotive plants and, and working with different groups of people in larger teams. And that's what led me to the account management business development. To sell TIO2 to smaller businesses, is it harder because they don't have the same level of manufacturing available to them? What were some of the challenges? Do you remember? I mean, I am taking you back on your resume. Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're taking me away that. But it was just really how to how to reach them, how to engage them, how to get them to make the switch. And so we did uh, webinars back when webinars weren't like Whoa. a thing. I know, right? That was very innovative. It was, it was. And that actually led me to my next job when I went to WR Grace to lead innovation. As a researcher and someone who's obsessed with research and the scientific method, does that mean you are highly organized and super detail-oriented? I'm just making an assumption based upon what it takes to, like, love research. At work, yeah. So, it, you know, I'm all... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm definitely about data, about collecting data. You know, I'm an Excel nerd totally passionate and believe about uh, stage gate processes for product development and new business development. And so, yes, you have to be very organized, you know, very committed to managing projects, managing innovation as a process. That's how innovation happens. It's not mysterious and magical. It's committing to 
you know, identifying a problem, asking the right questions, collecting the right data, coming up with ideas, trying them out, collecting that information. That's when the innovation happens. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. So innovation isn't tied to a specific person or a magic company. Right. It's not mysterious. It's not magical. It can be taught. It can be managed as a process. It just requires a culture for innovation. You know, again, bringing uh, the right people together, really identifying, asking the right questions like what are you trying to solve? What is the solution you might be looking for? What is it that people need? Bringing those people together in ways where you can use the tool to get those ideas on paper and really start to try them out. How do you think if people have a baby fledgling idea, right? So people are working in a very large corporate environment and they've got their little dream. Maybe they have an MVP And so many of these products or innovations die in the valley of death before they cross over to actual production and being released. What do you think it takes to get these baby innovation ideas and practices like out there and ending up being implemented at an enterprise level? The best example would probably be when I left DuPont to go work for W.R. Grace. And I left to lead uh, innovation in their emerging biofuels program. So W.R. Grace is a large supplier to the petroleum refining industry. They make silica products for purification of oils and and catalysts. So you have this really large petroleum refining supplier who now wants to take a look at this biofuels market, which is disruptive and very much at odds with the whole culture of the company. There was a vision to grow in biofuels, but not knowing where, how, you know, if it really makes sense. And then, of course, you have this company that's invested so much in petroleum refining, where the culture has not yet been established to support this small, innovative program in biofuels. And so what it took was the commitment that we're going to have this small team of people working on this specific market segment and giving them the resources, the freedom to do that, and then being able to uh, give them time to do it, meaning the innovation you know, may not happen in quarters, but years, right? But really being committed to the process for you know, identifying the needs of this emerging market space, biofuels and renewable fuels, investing in the people, partnering 
the internal collaborations, the external collaborations, so with other chemical companies, universities, government, and then the commitment to you know the stage gate process of, of identifying potential solutions. I think at one time I had like seven or eight different new product development projects uh, and seeing them to the end. And not all of them, you know, were successfully commercialized, but some were. How old are you when you take this position? It was called Director of Innovation? It was a marketing role. I was Global Marketing Manager for WR Grace's New Business Development Incubator. I was my 30s, early 30s. You're managing a lot of people who are more senior than you? Oh, yes, for sure. And so we were this small, innovative team. You know, you could equate it to being like a startup. We felt like we were the cool kids, so to speak. (laughs) But the team I managed were researchers, fellows, and I managed them, you know, as a project team. It didn't necessarily report directly to me. But one of my favorite uh, people that I've ever worked with, he was a research fellow. So he was the guru of Catalyst at Grace, and he knew it all, (laughs) including like he was always fond of telling us, you know, what wasn't going to work. You know, it was my job to come up with ideas of what would work and work and try to commercialize them. But we um, developed a great respect for each other and it went on to commercialize some great products for renewable diesel. Were you nervous to take on this job? Oh, yes, very much so. I didn't feel like that I was technical enough. I didn't feel like I knew enough. You know, I was the only woman of color. This market space was emerging. Things were happening all the time. So like the CEO and the VPs were always shooting emails with, you know, a link to an article they read about some new feedstock, some new fuel, some new process. There was always a conference to go to, always someone ringing our doorbell, wanting to partner, collaborate. There was a lot to manage. And then that's where my value came in. Cause like, okay, I can make sense of this. And I kept all of that organized. So who are all the people we can partner with? Okay, well, let's organize them. We've got government, we've got universities, we've got small business, we've got these one-person startups. So let's organize them. Let's start to put all that together and then see where our products, our capabilities overlap and match, identify some solutions, and then let's work on the ones that we think will be impactful. How did you even find out about this job? I was a DuPont in Delaware and I had recently, you know, finished my MBA and I was 12 years at, at DuPont and still like the new kid on the block. <laughs> you know, here you have a company that was over 200 years old and people who had 30 plus years seniority. So again, at 12 years, I still was a new kid on the block and just really wanted more opportunity. And I started looking at other businesses within DuPont. Going from one business unit to another in a company so big is almost like going from one company to another. And so that's when it dawned on me, well, maybe I should look at other companies. And I came across WR Grace and I remember putting my resume together. The first time I had done it in in a long time because I'd been in DuPont for 12 years and got a call right away. Did you do your MBA full-time or part-time? 
It was uh, an executive MBA. So I did it on weekends at Michigan State University while I worked uh, at DuPont. And that's where I met Andrew. What made you decide to get an MBA? So I had already made the switch from R&D, the lab work, to account management. And I really felt it was going to help me uh, you know, get to higher levels of leadership in the sales and marketing organization. Everyone who works in business or for a large organization should get an MBA because it really just helps you put the pieces together in terms of, you know, how all the different parts of business come together. Did you struggle with deciding to get an MBA or becoming more business focused when your little girl dream had been to grow up and be a researcher? Yeah, I actually did. I thought, well, I should be getting, you know, a master's in chemistry or something like that. And once I learned what marketing really is, it's being able to interpret data, being able to understand technology so that you can develop better products and services. You are the go-between your organization's technical team and the customer in terms of understanding their needs. I think it's a powerful combination to have your technical undergraduate degrees, right? And then that experience of sitting there watching the paint dry (laughs) job and running through the test and to really understand the business, the core business of what they're trying to produce before trying to market it. So you have that integration of those two different aspects of it that you're bringing to bear. Now, how did you decide on an executive MBA? I didn't want to stop working. And the Michigan State program was well regarded. My company paid for it. That's always the best, isn't it? (laughs) I always tell people, like, get working. Companies pay for degrees. That's like the number one thing. Like, just get your foot in the door and then work on the degree. Now, did you find the MBA more challenging than your undergrad? Was it different? It was different doing work in teams. That's the biggest adjustment doing it, you know, outside of the work environment. But I loved about it is that anything I learned in class over the weekend, I was applying like Monday morning. Everything was so relevant and applicable to what I was working on at the time. That just made it so exciting. How do you end up from WR Grace to working in the mayor's office in Baltimore? In between WR Grace and the mayor's office, I was recruited for a role with Cabot, the chemical company. They were in activated carbon. I took a job in their catalyst business, a global marketing role I was recruited for, and it was in Boston. So I had my house here in Baltimore. I had an apartment in Boston. My job was global. I was spending time in the Netherlands and Germany on a regular basis. And it was fun. It was great. But then something happened where, you know, I was like, you know, I want to work closer to home, not just physically, but in terms of things I cared about. And that led me to the mayor's office. I started interviewing people like friends who worked in government, friends who worked for nonprofits. I got connected to 
an amazing woman who leads a huge foundation. And I like looking back, I can't believe she even gave me her time, you know, knowing how busy she is. But we talked for like an hour because she had also made a switch from a for-profit career to this foundation. Those are the types of things that led me to the mayor's office. And so I found out about an innovation role in the mayor's office. And I was like, that's perfect. You know, like, yeah, let's see what this is. And so it I was offered a role leading what was known as a city stat in the mayor's office. Uh, and at the time, the mayor wanted something more than the city stat. City stat is the foundational uh, stats program that was really created uh, in, in Baltimore. And that is looking at data to improve the efficiencies of government but it can be very um, punitive, right? And not really being about like solutions building. And so at the time, the mayor wanted something that was more about bringing the city's agencies and teams together for the top priorities, which at the time was public safety and violence reduction. So I led the mayor's office of sustainable solutions. Is this a political appointee job or is it a job that's available regardless of who's in office? I was appointed by the mayor. I was part of the mayor's cabinet. How much of that job did you spend your time even just getting people to try to give you data? A lot. A lot. (laughs) My obsession is data, data data-driven solutions, data architectures, My God, I swear a huge portion of any of that job is to actually wrangle data out of people's hands. Then half the time it's like a mess anyway. (laughs) Yeah, so they should probably, the job title should probably be, as you said, data wrangler, data plumber. (laughs) Can you make people feel safe? It's like you're a therapist, right? It's like, I don't like getting on the scale, right? Like, oh God. And that would be like, if I had to weigh in, or same thing with looking at my financial data all the time. It's it's hard. And then to have that shared, exposed and dissected by other people and you don't know how it's going to be used, it's quite hard. But then to build these actual solutions that go forward, you need to know where you stand and how you stand. Talk technical to me. What was like the architecture that you used? Were they using Tableau? Was it all in a SQL database? Do you know the innards of that? One of the things that we did innovate during my time was the use of Power BI to track the data and to also develop performance dashboards. Now, Baltimore has a reputation for its crime. What were some of the statistics or data that you were focused on pooling out and translating that into a solution? From the mayor's office, it was you know really about focusing on things other than policing. We were focused on community outreach. We were focused on bringing the agencies together. And what we did is we convened over 25 city agencies daily, 8 a.m., Monday through Friday, at the police department to review the violent crime data up to that, that moment But to talk about, you know, what was happening specifically in eight communities that were had been identified as being um, the most violent and then 
bringing those agencies together to prioritize them, public works, how do we make these areas greener and cleaner? How do we support the small businesses there? You know, what are their needs? Department of Transportation, what do we do about lighting in those areas? Recreation and parks, can we extend the hours of the rec centers there? The mayor's office of employment development, you know, what, how do we talk to people about job opportunities? So bringing all those people together, doing what they do best, but focused on some of the most violent neighborhoods in the city. Was this the hardest job you'd had to this date? Absolutely. One, because you're dealing with people's lives. So you cannot be uh, not touched by learning about a young person who was murdered, you know, moments before you were to to talk about violent crime stats for the day. What was it like to have a very public job? Did you read the newspaper? What did you stop reading the newspaper? Did that have an impact on you? So no, you don't stop reading the newspaper. <laughs> you develop a thicker skin. You got used to it. We had a, a lot of late night, not so happy hours where we commiserated, you know, together, you know, other agency leaders and my team, but you got used to it and just realized it was a part of the job. Everyone can talk to you now about your job. Before, like, who knows about TIO2, right? Like, what? That's right. Every, <laughs> everyone, you know, as they should, you know, had an opinion or definitely an experience. And so many things were happening during that time. You had Trump talking about Baltimore. You had the outcomes of uh, Freddie Gray. And then I remember just, I don't know if it was near our neighborhood, but a woman was killed And she blamed the car cleaners. And it turned out it was a young woman killing her mother, right? And so you have all of that very publicly going on. So everybody kind of knows about your job and your is like living through the effectiveness of the mayor's leadership. Yeah, you develop thick skin. Yeah, you try to develop chips on your shoulder. But, you know, you're talking about media and everyone beating up on Baltimore and being intimately, you know, aware of the the challenges that, you know, our agencies face in delivering services, you know, it's just like, yes, everyone's beating up Baltimore and people are just are literally dumping their garbage, you know, in Baltimore. So yeah, it was, it was tough. You must have taken a pay cut. Here you are, big wig. You have to have an apartment in Boston so you can fly internationally. And then you go towards working for Baltimore City. What was that like from a financial perspective? Were you prepared for that change? Yeah. You know, when I was thinking about, you know, the career move, I had already considered that, you know, I would not make as much. But what I thought would be more satisfying to me, you know, as a profession, you know, money wasn't everything. Now you're at NPower. Tell us about what is NPower. So we are a national nonprofit dedicated to the mission of changing people's lives, improving economic mobility through tech, focused on serving young adults as well as military veterans. Our foundational program is Tech Fundamentals. It's a six-month program where we are 
training people to get certifications that allow them to be placed in IT and cyber roles. What certifications? The CompTIA ITF certifications, A+. Do most people own a laptop before they come in? Do they all have a computer? What's the starting point before they come and work with you? So pre-pandemic, all of our trainees were coming into our training centers and using our laptops provided here. You know, once we went to remote virtual learning during the pandemic, there was a report issued by ABLE about a year ago that said, yeah, a third of the households in Baltimore don't have access to the internet or devices. And that's exactly what we saw in our program. So about a third of our trainees needed some support so that we loaned laptops, we bought hotspots for people to use. Do a lot of them all have phones though? Everybody has a phone, but you can't, <laughs> can't complete a tech training course on your, or your phone. You can't do really very much online learning on your smartphone. They go through six months of training. What's the typical job that they get in starting salary? Our most recent data is that we are taking, for average class, they're coming in unemployed or underemployed, average class salary, $8,000 a year. And then within a year of completing our program, we are at 38000 and we have people you know, making a lot more than that two years out of the program. Our alumni are you know, at large defense contractors, they are at you know, IT solution providers, they are at other nonprofits, they are at universities. We are partnered with so many employers, any organization that has uh, an IT department, we have alumni suited for those roles. What other certifications are you focused on cybersecurity training as well? Yes, so we are doing the security Plus certification, CompTIA Security Plus. How hard do people find the program? There are people who are coming to us who have had some college, but there are so many who come to us without having gone to college. And you can equate it to you know a full-time semester. It is harder than some people expect. There are some people who do come to us, you know, who are you know, working, you know, a part-time job or working, you know, like a warehousing job at night and find it, you know, increasingly difficult as you get into weeks three and four to maintain those part-time job hours and complete the program. Some people do, but it is hard. But we have just a fantastic team here in Baltimore. You know, our instructors are really uh, you know, customizing, you know, the experience for our trainees. So recognizing that, you know, life brings so many unexpected challenges, but you can do this and we're going to help you through it. What percentage of people who start the program finish the program? About 80% of the people who start finish. That's wonderful. And what kind of vetting process or exam do you do for the people before they start the program? So you must have a GED or high school diploma. We are, you know, assessing really your capacity, willingness, commitment to completing the program. So it's not about just the training. It's about understanding what, for the individual, what are their barriers to employment 
and really understand what those barriers are, you know, developing action plans and helping people address them during the training. So again, it's GED or high school diploma, an assessment of being able to complete the program, stay in the program for the 23 weeks. We refer people for literacy support. Of course, we're doing a professional development. You know, that's a, a large part of the program, you know, being career ready. And so, yeah, that's the resume. That's the, the LinkedIn profile. That is the interview techniques. It's how to dress, all of those things. How can the people listening help Empower? Oh, there's so many ways, so many ways. So I would say for... The tech leaders who are listening, as you think about diversifying your talent pipeline, please consider skills-based hiring that, you know, there are roles within your organization that don't require a college degree. And so make sure that the job descriptions, you know, reflect that, right, and give your teams uh, the flexibility to hire people with certifications, right? And then engage with us by mentoring, coming in to deliver tech talks for professional development, uh, hosting our trainees as intern, and then also committing to hiring our trainees into full-time roles and apprenticeships. In-kind donations are always accepted, computer equipment. We also were taking clothing donations and then you know, our program is completely free to those we serve. So we are funded through generosity of individuals, as well as corporate foundations and government as well. Anything else we should talk about for NPower? I'd like to spend just maybe a moment, you know, highlighting how we are also focused on bringing more women of color to tech And we launched a 40 by 22 initiative with City Foundation a while back, where our goal is to uh, have 40% of our trainees and alumni and our instructors be women of color by 2022. And so we are uniquely focused on and very intentful about uh, recruiting more women to the program and bringing more women instructors, more women in to speak. We've developed a women's coalition. So very much you know, interested in staying connected to women's networks in the tech industry. What is the current percentage of women in Empower for students? Uh, we're about 30%. Oh, you're at 30%. Oh, that's great. Yes. That's great. I'm so used to uh, tech still being so predominantly male. And then my experience, too, is that often women women don't enter because it's a stereotype of a man's job. And then often women are pushed into stereotypical female jobs. So, oh, you received the certification, but we need a tech writer. We need a program manager. So there's still, even within tech, jobs that I think people are stereotyping as a more women's job. But I love the idea of women getting into tech. One, because I think it is great from a lifestyle perspective. And when I say lifestyle, I mean money. So I think it's a great path to make a lot more money and to be able to take care of your family. And I think from 
a lifestyle perspective, it allows for more flexibility, both from job locations, hours, ability to provide support. We should also connect you with the Baltimore Family Alliance and perhaps put some promotion out there for the Baltimore families as well, because I think it's a great, uh, you know, I'm a super fan of tech, so I think it's a great path for people and families. It's about economic mobility. It's about changing lives. It's about changing communities. We have you know, almost 500 alumni here in Maryland and hundreds and hundreds of stories. But there's one uh, young man, his story just always sticks with me. He was like literally sleeping on his grandmother's couch before Empower. He had only gotten, you know, his GD. His grandmother was the one who I think initially signed him up. Actually, like, yeah, you've got to do something. But he took it from there. And he's on a management track three years later at a large defense contractor here in Maryland. And, you know, again, he changed his life. He changed the life of his family. So tech is it's not about just a job. It's about a career path and it's about high paying jobs. And so that's what tech affords you. I think it's a great flame, right? Getting the certificate is a great step to getting your foot in the door and seeing what awaits you as well, because there's so many different types of jobs available in tech from system administration to cyber analyst to network engineer towards IT support. And you really don't know until you're in it what your passion is and and what lies ahead for you. Turning personal, you are a fabulous dresser. Every time I see Kendra, she looks like a queen rolled up. I mean, this is not on video, but she looks absolutely gorgeous this morning. I have never seen her where she didn't look head to toe like a true queen. When you were young and in college and right out of college, were you this style of dressing as well? Or did you come into your own later from a style perspective? Definitely, I came into it later in life. But I will say that it probably started in college. I joined a sorority. I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. And there are so many reasons why I joined a sorority. One, because the student body president at the University of Florida at the time, which is predominantly white institution, the president was a black woman and she was a member and she was an AKA. And I just remember being so inspired by her and by that. But along with those leadership things, we were very much focused on presentation and image. And I did, I learned from my sorors about, uh, about looking good. And so, yeah, you look good, you feel good. And yes, like a, I guess a, a hobby of mine now. <laughs> <laughs> did it impact you professionally to be so well-dressed, especially when you were young, were people ever thinking, who do you think you are to be this dressed up or not to be in kind of a meek, plain outfit? Was there a negative impact to dressing well? I was thinking more about the positive impact. You know, when I started doing more um, business development work, the conferences, the trade organization, you know, events. And yes, it's people are drawn to people who you know, present themselves well. And so I was able to meet more people, collaborate more, make more connections 
because, you know, I looked the part. I want to talk about your marriage briefly. You are married to Andrew, and I had the pleasure of meeting Andrew through a friend who worked for Northrop Grumman. So your husband recently left Northrop Grumman, where he was focused both on uh, cyber and I believe space systems there. That's right. He's an aerospace engineer. (laughs) He's an aerospace engineer. And it turns out we both live on the same block. And you and your husband have been married for how many years? 15 years. You seem like marriage goals. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that before. Have have you not? They both are so fabulous and high energy and exciting. And your husband, I think, could not adore you more. He is amazing. And we bring out the best in each other. I think what you see is like we both have changed and grown throughout you know, our time together, we've been together like 18 years you know, in total. And we both are like are different people, but we we allowed each other to change, to grow, to take on new jobs, to go, you know, from for-profit to nonprofit to do Iron Man's. And what you see is just us being really intentional about letting each other live our best lives, but together. Did you get any marriage advice that you thought has been great? throughout your marriage? Lots of people said, you know, try to make it fun. Well, I think you hit that. And I did that. (laughs) And actually in the Excel chart, I put together what I was making. (laughs) When I was making the decision to get married, like, yes, I know that Andrew is the man for me. I know we're going to always have fun together. Yeah. He's always up for fun and an adventure. Yes. Even his clothing is colorful too. (laughs) Yes. And so now he's the person that you need to talk about their fashion journey (laughs) because he's, you know, custom suits and and clothing, but he started from cargo shorts and polo golf shirts. (laughs) So he's come a long way. So what advice do you have for other couples who are both have big, important jobs, right? So it's not just that you two are married and that you've been successful, but you both have these very demanding jobs. What advice do you have for other couples? Yeah, tell me, what should Brian and I be doing? <laughs> you guys look like goals from over here too. So I just want you to know that. But outsource as much as you can. You can't do it all. What do you outsource, Kendra? Oh, uh, well, cleaning, <laughs> landscaping. We are currently looking for an assistant, you know, because there are a lot of administrative things that, you know, need to happen, you know, know, to manage your household and your life and the business. Well, I'm glad you talked about that because I feel like it is still a bit taboo among particularly women to talk about the fact that they have and need help. Recently, you were awarded Maryland's Top 100 Women. What an honor. It was a a tremendous honor to be named to that list with so many other amazing women around the state. Yes. Well, and it's a nice reflection of all the work that you have done to get to where you are today and how much you have given to your community. And the other thing we haven't told you is that Kendra and her husband are unofficial mayors. Maybe you are the official mayors (laughs) of Bolton Hill. I don't know if there's a person in our neighborhood who doesn't know the two of them. We and love their our dog hoods. Puppy. 
It's a village. It's a village. It's a tiny village in Baltimore of these old historic homes. And you almost live in the center of it, too. So they are literally almost in the exact geographic center of it as well. But they bring everyone together in the community and they've helped pull me into uh, the community as well. And it's interesting because Baltimore has city choice and so many different schools that sometimes you don't actually know your neighbors because everyone's going to different schools as well. You know, you're not all at the bus stop together. You're doing a whole variety of things. So it's, it's interesting. Our neighborhood is filled with so many fabulous, creative, educated, smart, interesting people. And then we're bordered by the Maryland Institute College of Art. So we have quite a unique infusion. Now, before we go, Kendra, can you tell me about a book that has really impacted your life? Chinua Achieve, Things Fall Apart, because that just <laughs> the title is always making me reflect on things are never going to be perfect. You know, there's always going to be some upset, some failure, some loss, but you don't lie there. You don't lay there. You, you keep getting up. After that, I was a big fan of Agatha Christie growing up. Like I read all of the Agatha Christie novels and that's how kind of how I see myself in my career. You know, like I've crossed for-profit, non-profit, government, I'm always a problem solver. If you can solve a problem, if you can bring some clarity to uh, a mystery, like that's going to carry you a long way. So your business cards would say chief problem solver. <laughs> yes, that is exactly right. Now, before we go, tell me something about yourself that might surprise us. I love to dance. What kind of dance? Oh, like hip hop dance. Like, oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes. Is there a whole series of TikTok videos on you that we can watch? <laughs> Not a whole series. <laughs> <laughs> Are you and your niece up there in her room doing TikTok videos? <laughs> but I do. I, I love to dance. I love like, I love hip hop and rap to the point where I think it's sometimes embarrassing to my husband because I'll be riding down the street with the, <laughs> the volume turned up so loud to the point where he's looking back thinking it's some kid coming down the street <laughs> and it's me. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Yes, there's something I'd like to touch on. All of the you know organizations in Baltimore that are doing so much to make a difference Empower, you know, I'm a part of the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition, and it's an amazing collaborative of over 50 organizations that came together at the start of the pandemic to say, you know, what are we going to do about this lack of access to devices, internet, but then also digital skills and empower in collaboration with the other IT training providers launched a community tech support hotline. And so it's staffed with interns from our organizations, and they are providing tech support to adult learners from other nonprofits. We're solving a problem of providing, you know, like a great paid learning experience for the interns. We're helping, you know, these adult learners, you know, with hardware, software problems, you know, getting their online training materials, but also this is impactful in terms of helping people 
to gain employment. So just want to really make people aware of the work of the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition and the Community Tech Support Hotline. And of course, you can learn more about them online. That's awesome. And that's in the show notes. So we'll be sure to share that in the show notes for everyone. And also, yeah, recommend your young people to to Empower. We're always recruiting and you'll find that in at empower.org. Awesome. Well, Kendra, this has been one of the best interviews. I really appreciate you sharing so much time with me this morning and allowing me to delve so deep into your past. But I love what a big nerd you are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.